from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 28th. Today, why 2020 hopefuls are vague on when they'll release their tax returns. Two novel treatments for depression and a dispatch from Venezuela. Hi, I just posted my latest tax returns online. That is something that I've done over the last 10 years. It's a simple proposal that would require every presidential candidate of a major party to release their tax returns. Our tax returns will bore you to death. It's simply a mix. Nothing special about them. Kristen Gillibrand, actually, she became the first Democratic hopeful to release her 2018 tax returns. We can't fundamentally change Washington unless we can show the American people we are brave enough to do what needs to be done. Which aren't due until April 15th, so people still have time. Don't worry. Holly Bailey is a national political reporter for The Post, and she's been covering how 2020 Democratic candidates are handling the public release of their tax returns. There's Kirsten Gillibrand. We have heard returns dating back to 2007. And Elizabeth Warren. She released way back to 2008, which was the first year she became, sort of she entered public life. Holly's noticed that there aren't actually that many Democratic candidates who've released them. She and Gillibrand are the leaders on this front. Everybody else is sort of in murky territory. Well, that's what's so surprising because historically it's been a standard for presidential candidates to release their tax returns. And even more so because of the last election where Democrats had so many criticisms of President Trump for not releasing his tax returns. But yet there are a lot of candidates, a lot of Democratic candidates, who it's unclear whether or not they're actually going to release them. Yeah, we should just, you know, mention this is a voluntary exercise. It is a standard dating back to the 1970s when presidential candidates began releasing their tax returns. There have been years where candidates have released 10 years, five years, showing, you know, sometimes embarrassing things. I mean, John McCain, for example, in 2008, got a lot of heat because we learned that he and his wife, Cindy McCain, owned a lot of houses. And that became an attack line in the campaign. But in 2016, as you mentioned, Donald Trump completely avoided this. He said, I don't mind releasing. I'm under a routine audit and it'll be released. And as soon as the audit's finished, it'll be released. You know, that he couldn't release his taxes because they were under IRS audit. And that's something that he's said repeatedly to avoid discussion about a lot of his personal finances. Does the public's right to know outweigh your personal? Well, I told you, I will release them as soon as the audit. Look, I've been under audit almost for 15 years. And so now there's a worry, especially among watchdog groups, that this might become the standard, that, you know, this voluntary um, activity that has been, you know, sort of a tradition for presidential candidates will go away because candidates will say, well, Trump didn't do it. Why should I? Which candidates have not yet released their tax returns? Candidates like Kamala Harris and, you know, Beto O'Rourke have said, we're going to release our tax returns, but they haven't said when. And they haven't said, you know, to what extent, what records they will release. Whether it'll be the last year or the last five years, the right. last 10 years. Right. There's no standard because it is voluntary. Now, a lot of groups are asking people to release 10 years worth. I think that's a good one. But, you know, one of the things that people are focusing on is Bernie Sanders, for example. In 2016, he got a lot of heat because he didn't release a, a full, you know, several years of tax returns as Hillary Clinton had. It just was a mechanical issue. We don't have accountants at home. My wife does most of it, and we will get that stuff out. 
And he, you know, sort of cast it as, you know, being an everyday American. Our taxes, you know, our records are everywhere. They're a mess and we need to gather them. But he kind of cited that excuse again and again. And I feel like when you're running for president, you tend right. to figure that out by the time you start running. <laughs> One would think, but his campaign is still, you know, not released them. About a month ago at a CNN town hall, he was asked about this and he said, look, we're going to release 10 years worth. So when do you think we'll be able to see your tax return? Sooner than later. What does that mean? Soon. Soon. Yes. <laughs> Are they ready to be released? Or I think that we have to just do a few more little things, but to check them out. And a month later, we're still waiting. His campaign yesterday said, we have nothing to report on this. So we're still in a waiting mode to see what's going to happen. And in the meantime, this sort of shows dangerous territory because people are now speculating, well, what what's in those taxes? Is there something that Bernie Sanders is hiding? And he has said, no, they're so boring. You know, there's nothing to see. But we haven't seen them. So now there's speculation. And why didn't you do it the last time around? You were under a lot of pressure to do so. I wasn't under a lot of pressure. Well, I didn't end up doing it because I didn't win the nomination. If we had won the nomination, we would have done it. All right. Senator, but but again, I, I don't want to shock you. Well, they're very boring tax returns. I, will look I think the Bernie Sanders example is particularly interesting because some people have proposed that maybe the reason why he doesn't want to release his tax returns is because he filed them jointly with his wife and there could be things to scrutinize in his wife's financial history. And that could be the case for a lot of these candidates. Absolutely. I mean, you're opening yourself up not just for scrutiny for yourself, but you're for your entire family. Gillibrand, um, it must be, you know, sort of pointed out that her husband is a venture capitalist, but he, you know, reported no income, which was sort of interesting for his profession. And we don't know any more details than that. But it is something, you know, spouses can be very tricky. There's an idea that you come with, it comes with the territory when your spouse runs for public office. It's not just scrutiny of them, but it's scrutiny of everything about your life, every aspect. And some people aren't very comfortable with that. Why is it so important for candidates to release their tax returns? Well, there is this idea that, you know, you sort of get an idea of a few things. You see how much people earn. You see how much people sort of how they manage their money. There are clues about that. And it's important to point out that tax returns aren't the only thing we sort of see. You know, tax returns, filing them are voluntary. But there is a requirement that with the Federal Election Commission and the Office of Government Ethics that candidates file what is called a personal financial disclosure, which sometimes is more illuminating than tax returns. You see it's much broader in terms of describing a, a net worth of a candidate and their spouse. But you do see things like what's the worth of their house and what kind of speaking fees they've gotten outside income. And that's really important. Yeah, because I think that people look at these tax returns and they might say, well, you're only trying to embarrass candidates if they have too much money or if they happen to own multiple houses and then it's shaming people for wealth. But in a lot of ways, the reason why they're so important is because you want to figure out where people are making their money from, who they could be beholden to if they were to get into office. Right. And that's something that Kirsten Gillibrand said in her video that she released along with her taxes yesterday. I want voters to know that I am beholden to no one, uh, that my values are not for sale, and that I'm working only for you. And that's been an attack line that Democrats have been using against Donald Trump since 2016. They've argued that he should release his taxes so we know exactly who he owes money to, what sort of income, how he's managing his money. And so there is a, you know, a danger for Democrats, I think, optically if they don't do this because it takes away that attack line. How can people attack Donald Trump if their own presidential candidates aren't matching that? But at the same time, the fact that it worked for President Trump, that he was still elected even though he didn't release his tax returns, does that 
do you think that some candidates might ultimately say, look, the risk of, of releasing them isn't worth the reward. And if other people can get away with it, why should I have to do it? I think that that is something that we're watching very closely. Watchdog groups are really pressing Democrats to do the right thing here and to be as transparent and open as possible. But, you know, I think the fact that we've seen such a delay in this sort of gets at the idea that these campaigns and these candidates are also looking at the other side of how something might be used against them. It feels kind of like a game theory prisoner's dilemma sort of situation <laughs> where it's like, if you're the only one who ends up releasing your tax returns and everyone else keeps them private, then you could end up in a bad spot. Definitely. Definitely. And and again, I mean, as a, an average person, they don't want, you know, most people don't want their tax returns out there. But again, you're running for president. We've seen decades of, of a standard where presidential candidates have done this to be open and show their finances. And it's a thing that people have done. And I think it's beyond the sort of the money question also. Democrats have really talked about the commitment to government service and, and sort of how you sort of handle yourself in public office. And there is a question if people don't release this information, what does that say about their commitment to the service like that? Holly Bailey is a national political reporter for The Post. On Thursday, The Post reported that President Trump exaggerated his net worth and the value of his real estate holdings in newly uncovered documents. Those, quote, statements of financial condition date back to a period from 2011 to 2013. They were given to banks and lenders doing business with Trump, and they omitted debts, overvalued properties by many millions of dollars, and even exaggerated the height of Trump Tower by 10 stories. The actual amount of the president's wealth remains unknown because he hasn't released his tax returns. Ever since Prozac first became popular in the late 80s and the early 90s, there have only been a few new drugs to treat depression. But this month, the FDA approved two novel drug treatments. Well, I think this has been just an incredible month, and psychiatrists and patients are very excited about what's going on because it seems as though we're finally getting some new approaches to this very debilitating illness. I'm Lori McGinley, and I'm a health and medical writer for The Washington Post. Lori has been reporting on these two very different new treatments. Early in the month, the FDA approved a drug called esketamine, also known as Spravato. That is for people who have treatment-resistant depression, who have not been able to respond to other kinds of treatments. There are about 5 million people in the United States who suffer from that every year. That drug is delivered by a nasal spray, and it targets a different part of the brain than traditional antidepressants. The other new depression treatment was approved last week. And that is for postpartum depression that occurs either the week before a woman delivers or the month afterwards. Lori has been reporting on health and medicine for a long time, and she said that these two developments are game changers for mental health. We've really, when you think about it, had the same depression drugs for decades. The iconic drug is Prozac, but there are many drugs that are very, very similar to Prozac, but they all operate with the same mechanism. 
these drugs are SSRIs, and they tend to target either serotonin or norepinephrine that are two chemicals in the brain. These new approaches target different pathways and different chemicals in the brain. And what's really encouraging and exciting about them is that they work for a whole different segment of people than the SSRIs. The SSRIs, for example, only work for about 45% of people, and they take several weeks to kick in. So let's start with the ketamine nasal spray. How does this work? So this is the first antidepressant that blocks a receptor for a brain chemical called glutamate. And that's a chemical that is implicated in mood and mood elevation. This drug and the and the other drug that was approved, the researchers don't know exactly how they operate, but they do know they are a big improvement for many people over what we had before. But as you probably know, this is a component of party drug called ketamine, and that drug causes hallucinations, dissociation, excess sedation. And so because of that, and because esketamine can also be habit-forming, the FDA approved esketamine with many safety requirements. So esketamine will be administered in doctor's offices and clinics via a nasal spray. Then if you're the patient, you have to go in, you get your nasal spray, and you wait around for a while till they check and make sure that you don't have any kind of side effects from it. Well, that's what I found interesting about this is because when I think of ketamine, I think of the party drug. And it's just really surprising that this recreational drug is now being used as a very serious treatment to depression. Well, it's interesting. And and when you ask researchers about it, they say that the key is in the dose of the drug and that you keep the dose low. And remember, ketamine has been used, it was approved years ago as an anesthetic. So it's been used as anesthesia for many, many years. And then it was used off-label to treat depression in clinics around the country. So there are hundreds of clinics around the country where doctors are actually giving people ketamine intravenously. For the people who are benefiting from this, what do the effects look like for them? One of the great advantages of esketamine is that it acts very rapidly. So unlike the traditional existing SSRI antidepressants, esketamine will help someone in hours certainly in days, but in hours, which can be life-saving, especially if somebody is having some suicidal ideation. And the people who would be prescribed this are the people who have not responded well to traditional antidepressants. That's right. This is for people who have treatment-resistant depression, which the FDA is defining as having not responded to two previous treatments of presumably SSRIs. And then there is this new treatment for postpartum depression. What is this all about? Yes, this is a really interesting story. This is a drug that is called Brixonolone, and it's going to be marketed under the brand name of Zolreso. And what this drug does is it targets a different part of the brain, and it also operates much more quickly than the traditional antidepressants. This is a drug that is given in IV, continuous IV, for 60 hours, has to be given under the supervision of a healthcare professional. It will be given in doctor's offices, medical clinics. It strikes me that this kind of treatment for postpartum depression is only happening now, even though we've known for a long time that postpartum depression is a serious issue. Postpartum depression is really serious, and I think that some people think of it as the baby blues, which it certainly is not. Many new mothers are overwhelmed for a few days or a few weeks, but this is something that is really much more debilitating. 
and can affect a woman's ability to take care of herself and her baby and also how she can bond with the baby. And it's characterized by feelings of guilt and worthlessness and sometimes thoughts of suicide. I think in terms of developing a treatment for it, traditionally this has been treated with the traditional antidepressants and psychotherapy, but I think they have not been extremely effective. And so this approach has literally been under under scrutiny for years and years. It started many years ago at the National Institute of Mental Health. And it just takes a very, very long time to develop new drugs. You said that oftentimes women who are experiencing postpartum depression are either given traditional antidepressants or psychotherapy, and that doesn't tend to work. Why doesn't that tend to work on new mothers the same way that it works on regular people who are suffering from depression? I think the reason why that doesn't work and why this drug is different is the theory behind this drug is that when you're pregnant, you have a very high level of certain hormones. After you deliver, those hormones just go way down. And for some people who are stressed or might have some kind of other vulnerability or genetic vulnerability, that can develop into postpartum depression. And so this particular treatment uses a breakdown of a hormone. It's chemically identical to a hormone that is present when you are pregnant. Mm. And that is what acts on the GABA receptor to elevate mood. So it's a completely different way of thinking about depression because it's about hormones. That's right. And you said that it takes 60 hours to deliver this intravenously. Is that realistic for a lot of women? I asked the researchers that because that seemed very cumbersome to me. Who can leave their house and go move into a clinic or a doctor's office for a couple of days when they have a baby? But what what they said to me was that if you have debilitating postpartum depression, if your doctor says to you, I have a treatment that will not only cure you, but also you probably will not have to get it again. It's probably once and done, and it'll take two and a half days to do it. People will do it. They said that at least in the clinical trials, now granted they're not paying for the drug in the clinical trials, but at least in the clinical trials, it wasn't an obstacle. People were happy to have the option. I think the timing of this drug is really interesting because it seems like we're getting to a point where we're finally taking postpartum depression seriously as a medical issue that a lot of people experience. And I think you could say the same for depression on the whole, that We've finally gotten to a place where a lot of people understand that it's not something that you can just get over or snap out of. Do you think that the arrival of these new drugs is somewhat a reflection of the fact that that it is being taken more seriously as a medical issue? I think that's certainly the case. Depression is a major cause of disability, not only in the United States, but across the world. It's a huge problem. It's not viewed with stigma anymore. For the most part, I believe, I think people see it as a medical problem that needs a medical solution. And that attitude, coupled with the fact that scientists are finally figuring some of these things out. There were a lot of failed clinical trials in the 1990s and the 2000s. And I think that now they're coming up with new approaches that are starting to pay off. Lori McGinley covers health and medicine for The Post.
And now, one more thing. Over the last year, we've all seen coverage of protests and upheaval in Venezuela. But we haven't had many glimpses into the daily lives of Venezuelans. My name is John Gerberg. I'm a video journalist. My name is Michael Robinson Chavez, and I'm a staff photographer at The Washington Post. John and Michael spent almost a month in Venezuela, traveling throughout the country, photographing and recording the daily realities there. Venezuela is in a dire state right now. It's in a struggle politically, socially, certainly economically. I mean, people have heard, you know, the sounds of the demonstrations, the protests on the border, you know, the government repression. But there's also a deeper story there. There is a crisis going on in every way, but people are still going about their everyday lives. We got to Caracas. We land right on the Caribbean coast, and there's these beautiful mountains that just rise right out of the Caribbean. And Caracas kind of sits in a valley on the other side of the the mountains from the coast. We were picked up, then went into the city. Driving in, the lack of traffic, the lack of noise that you normally associate with a bustling Latin American city. And then at night, the city became an absolute ghost town. Local people had told me that at 6 o'clock, the police pretty much leave the streets. And sure enough, after the lights went down, the streets were completely empty. Jose Coro lives by himself in a one-room shack in Petare, which is a famous, big, and dangerous, and impoverished barrio. He lost a son recently to pneumonia because he couldn't afford medicine. And every day, it's about a two-hour walk down out of the barrio, across the highway, and up into a gated, high-rise complex of apartments where much wealthier Venezuelans live. And he does odd jobs for them. I asked him about the inequality, and he said, you know, there are no rich people anymore. He said, I've seen people in suits picking out of trash cans now. Of course, there's still a wealthier class, but the crisis has hit them too. So what he does now, he works and he says they can pay me however they want, whatever they have. From Caracas, we wanted to get out into the countryside. And then we went to the border area. Nearby, you know, we spent a lot of time in this city called San Cristobal. People there considered themselves lucky because of their proximity to the Colombian border in that they could actually go and get antibiotics. They could go and buy certain staples, rice, flour, and bring it back. And it used to be a place where Colombians would come to Venezuela to look for jobs and participate in the industry. And now it's the opposite. On your way into San Cristobal, there are literally miles-long lines just to fill up your tank with gas. And this is in a country with the largest known oil reserves in the world. People wait three days to get gasoline. We met people that had been waiting literally days in line, packing sleeping bags, pillows, toothpaste, and mouthwash so they could sleep in their cars just to wait to fill up their tank. We met a young man named Esteban who actually brought his bass guitar so he could practice in his car. Good while bass he was... player, by the way. Very good. Being Venezolanos, they find 
joy because it's just in the country spirit. It's in the in the way the people are there. There's just this this love for life. Singing, playing music, you know, out in the park. You know, I never heard somebody tell me that their life was perfect in the whole time we were there, but I also never heard anybody say, I give up. But at the same time, I mean, we have to remember that over three million have left the country. But for those that stay behind, I mean, they're looking for those corners and those little moments when they can kind of just release and celebrate. To see John and Michael's photos and videos from their travels across Venezuela, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners, a 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>